today on Backroom Politics. You know that schedule that we posted online? Scrap it. There's way too much stuff going on. Christie's in a hard spot. Weather taking over the Midwest. There's all kinds of stuff going on the hill. This is Backroom Politics. <laughs> Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Tuesday, it's Washington, D.C. That means it's time for the best political radio show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live on Block Talk Radio from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, he is the former eight-terms representative from the great state of Washington. He is Congressman Al Sweat. Hello, Congressman. How are you? I do fine. How are you, sir? To his left, which is an odd statement, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He's a former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hello, Justin. And I just want to know, when do I get to get to the right of Al? You, you, you're always to the right of Al. You're I'm sitting to the left. Well, you'll never get to that <laughs> point. Hey, and uh, joining me at the 12 o'clock slot today, she is the former General Counsel for the House Homeland Security Committee. She is the former Obama appointee as General Counsel to the Maritime Administration. She is the Honorable Denise Krep. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. Welcome back. And to her left is the former, uh, former longtime Senate staffer. He is former Under Secretary of Commerce. That has served at least last count four presidents. He's a very distinguished and very cool fellow today. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hi, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to my right, which is another odd place for him to be, he's the former executive director of the Democratic Party of the Great State of Maryland. He is longtime Washington insider Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin and everybody. And wow, where can we start? My gosh, there's so much we're going to talk about. Hey, joining us today is... Um, Let's see. Well, we just had a cancellation. Well, you know what? Scrap the whole show. We've got all kinds of stuff happening. It is amazing. Uh, we were going to have uh, Angela, uh, Angela Keene uh, join us today. We'll try and reschedule her. She would like to come in uh, next week. She got pulled for the Chrysler recall story. Chrysler Well, that you do that when you're in National Press Club and a working journalist. So, yeah, we'll have her again next week. But uh, we'll look forward to that discussion. But... That leaves us time to take in all the other stuff that's happening here in Washington. Uh, let's start with what happened in the past 24 hours here in D.C. Uh, as many of you all know, yesterday, uh, Senator Frank Lautenberg uh, passed away, the last of the greatest generation era uh, U.S. senators, last World War II veteran to be serving in, uh, in Congress, uh, passed away not 
unexpectedly, I think, a little shorter than a lot of believe due to complications of pneumonia and bronchitis. Obviously, our thoughts, our prayers go out to the Lockenberg family and the folks in New Jersey, but this has created a whole new political storm. Now, not even 24 hours later, we start hearing about all the things that are happening as far as who will Chris Christie replace as the next temporary senator from the great state of New Jersey. On top of that, we have developing news coming out of, uh, wow, we have breaking news from CNN. Uh, Here on the glass enclosed structure of backroom politics, CNN is now reporting that Chris Christie passes on appointing a Republican. That is dynamic. Okay, let's get into it. Bob, first of all, the, the news that Chris Christie at this point might, now we're going to assume it's going to be a Democrat, could be an independent, but him going against his own party, what is that, what is that a telltale sign of? Well, it may be a, a sign that he knows he's not going to be the nominee, for one thing. For president? Yes. He just got lap band surgery. Of course he's going to be the nominee. What are you doing? You're killing my dreams. <laughs> Alan Moore, this has got to scream just all kinds of stuff inside the party, outside the party, state politics, federal politics. What's the implication of, I mean, it, it, does this prove that Christie is, in fact, a rhino, a Republican in the name only? Let's talk about what the this is. What I have read and what I have heard and seen is that he has said that state law requires him to have the election in October. He has also set an August date for a primary. The, the, the words on the CNN screen say he passes on appointing a Republican. I'd like more information on that. I, I would be very surprised if he doesn't appoint somebody to fill in between now, well, the, it'll be after the funeral, which will be tomorrow, between now and the November election. And I would be absolutely flabbergasted if that were not a Republican. Having said that, he's in a little bit of hot water because the Republicans had hoped that if there were going to be a November election, uh, or an election this year that they could gain some uh, some traction from his presumed coattails by pushing it into October. He in, is going to force the taxpayers of New Jersey to incur significant additional expense. Well, the last now, number we saw was $25 million. Yeah, I don't additional. know where these numbers come from. I've seen that the, the $24 million number. It'll be real money. Uh, don't 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 get me wrong. Um, but his his line is, I have to do it this year, and and it behooves us therefore to get moving as quickly as possible so that the state you know by the way representation he can't hold a special election on general election day according to New Jersey law, which means that this senator would not be on the same ballot as Christie, which is another dynamic that we're looking at too. Does it, Bob? You had a comment first before well, the general election. I think is let's say the first. Tuesday in November, the special election is set for the 10th of October, and I think it's the 16th of August, which is the primary. Primary, correct. And you know, I suppose he could uh, he could appoint somebody to serve for six or eight weeks, but that'd be all. That's really be what it would be. 
very short period of time, and I think probably. No, it's not weeks. It's months. It's uh, up until uh, November. Up, yeah. or, or it's up until October. October, yeah. yeah. So, you know, the fact of the matter is it's a very short time, and by appointing somebody, he'll just, you know, he won't make anybody particularly happy. Out of well, we, we, there have been rumors flying around that he was considering uh, a, a current state senator out of Trenton. Uh, I had even heard Christine Todd Whitman's name being batted around. Um, but, you know, Al, as a Democrat, do you read this as, hey, we might get another governor's mansion and he may flip? Or is this a sign of a Republican doing what's in the best interest of the state of New Jersey? The latter. I, I, I'm impressed with Christie. Uh, as a Democrat, he scares the hell out of me. Uh, I think he's really smart. I think he's really shrewd. I think he knows how to talk to the middle class, which is some, a big problem for many Republicans. Uh, and this this is this is the big story on CNN today. I, I think it's going to go. Listen to all the the, the the process you just described. This has got to go through before you elect a senator, and I think this will all be forgotten, and he will come out looking like somebody who is a sensible. Denise Crap. Well, well, this this is going on in New Jersey. Still, a lot of things going on here in D.C., and I'm sure that folks in the Senate, and that's your house. Alan, not mine, are starting to say, okay, let's start counting votes for the gun legislation, for immigration, and for anything else that they think they might be moving, because they were really hoping for a Lautenberg vote. And if Lautenberg's not there and now down a senator, how are these votes going to swing? But, Bob, you, you make the comment, that, you know, this could be the sign that Christie believes that there's just no way in hell that the Republican Party will nominate him in 2016, I, I mean, have, have we gotten that far right as Republicans yes. to whereas that Christie is now going to be vilified for making this decision? Well, Dick Armey was just on CNN. He called the decision, according to CNN, true stupidity, quote-unquote. He should know. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would agree with Al on that one. But the fact of the matter is, I think that Christie is doing the right thing. I think he's doing the right thing. This, well, you know, why is that? Because a very short-term senator, you know, you may make, you know, you may, you may get a vote here or there, but it doesn't mean a great deal, probably. What's important is, as Christie said, I want to get somebody in there who can serve the, the great majority of what's left of Mr. Lautenberg's term. I got a hold. I could hold it a, a primary in August, and I can get a, a general election in October. Which means that the the next set, the senator who's elected on a temporary basis will about 16 months, and that's the best we can do. It's the best thing for this. If we ought to have the the, the citizens ought to make the decision. Call I think that's good. Uh, this this isn't the first time that a Republican governor has appointed a Democrat, or a Democratic governor has appointed a Republican, and there, there's sometimes governors feel that. We ought to honor. We ought to honor the person who died, and let that party have the seat until the special election. But Alan, I don't even know what you're talking, saying. All right, he wasn't appointing some Democrat. We don't. What the question is is whether he's going to appoint anybody for five months. The headline on CNN suggests that he's not. I warrant. I want to know more because I would be very surprised. We've had numerous cases of people appointed for just a few months. You fill the seat. 
the, the point here is that he, there, there was a question about whether he had the ability to appoint somebody now who could serve until November of next year, November of 2014, when Frank Lautenberg's seat would have expired and the, the seat for which Cory Booker, uh, Newark mayor, has said he's going to run. But this, now, this brings but, up a dynamic question, though. No, no, just a minute. So, so what, what he said, what... what what, that there are two conflicting laws in New Jersey. One says, run till November 2014. I think some Republicans said, test the law, go for that time. His feeling was, apparently, I mean, that all, all I've seen is the reports, that his lawyers said, you can't wait that long. You have to do it now. I don't know about this, do it on the same day as the November election. Yeah, that, if, if that's... Clearly, the case that is clearly the case. He wants to get it done in or around that time. Well, you know, you you bring up a, 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 an interesting dynamic. It, it is it has been known throughout the political world, uh, particularly in New Jersey, that there is a strong relationship between Cory Booker, the mayor of Newark, who is who has stated his intention to run for the U.S. Senate spot, being vacated by Frank Lautenberg now prematurely. Uh, there is a strong relationship between. Mayor Booker and Governor Christie. Looking at it as an outsider, Bob Hines, could he appoint Booker and just do the inevitable? Right now, Booker's pulling pretty high as far as the U.S. Senate race if it had happened November 14th. Well, he, this uh, governor has the authority to appoint a senator. Uh, to replace a uh, senator who dies or is unable to perform the duties. So that's the law, generally. Now, I would assume, I'm just guessing now, I would assume that uh, there, he, I don't expect the Senate, I don't expect the governor to appoint Booker to the Senate. Uh, I don't expect that at all. But I do expect that Booker will be the Democratic nominee in the primary, in a, he will be a candidate in the Democratic primary on the 16th of August, and will probably win that, and will be a candidate in the October 10th election for the remainder of the uh, Lautenberg term. But, but when you look at it, Denise Krapp, when, when you look at it, 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 it does scream that in the one instance where we may have a Republican who is obviously be willing to work with the other side in the best interests of the state, i.e. Governor Christie and President Obama after Hurricane Sandy, he is now the exception, not the norm. Is, do, do the Democrats worry that this could be the beginning, the opening light of a trend that we may see? Moderate Republicans, those that would ultimately be called rhinos, coming up in the spotlight and other liberal Republicans or moderate Republicans going, hey, let's follow suit? Right now, I think the best course of action for the Democrats is to sit and wait for the next two days. Don't say anything. Let the funeral occur and let Christie do what Christie's going to do and then make some decisions. The worst thing for my party to do at this point in time is to open their mouths. Well, which, which they are known to do with right. saying. <laughs> I don't know if Booker would, would really want to do that, uh, Bob, because if he if he goes that route, he still has to run again when uh, when the term ends. So um, and, and that is paying for two elections within two years, and, it, and New Jersey can get very expensive. 
Alan Moore. Wait, wait, wait. Are you suggesting that Booker might not run in October? No, no. Yes, I am. I'm thinking that he'll 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 run in the Democratic primary when whenever that is, and he'll run in the November election yep. for a full term. Well, no, no, no. No, 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 no. Okay, well, let's be quick. Let's be clear, Carl. No, 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 no. I'm wrong. I'm yeah, wrong. Yeah. You're right. Okay. okay. No, but let, let's be let's be clear about this. I mean, Booker will be there. Booker's going to be Booker on a will special be there. ballot. He will be on both ballots. He will likely be the next senator. He will have to run again in November. Right. Uh, I think we can assume it's coming November, a year early. Well, correct. Yeah. He'll he, he will yeah the the after this fall, the, right. the November of 2014. Um, that seemed there seems to be little doubt about that. Strange things happen in politics, um, and and you 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 can assume, you can guess, you can say that the odds favor Cory Booker being the next senator from uh, New Jersey. The next or, elected or senator. Next, the next. Thank you. The next elected senator from, from New Jersey. Correct. Um, but in the meantime, we've got five months before that election occurs, and. Uh, I, I, I myself would be very surprised if Chris Christie stands aside and says, I'm not going to fill that seat. There are plenty of people around, and one of them would be the former governor, Tom Keene uh, Sr., right. who's still a well-respected guy. He could go there. People would say, would, wouldn't, wouldn't, he wouldn't make waves. It would be a kind of a capstone to his career. Uh, there have been a number of examples like that in the, in the, in the course of history. But I would, I would, I'll be very surprised if he doesn't appoint somebody, and he'll be careful of who that is. It won't be a conservative firebrand. It will unlikely be the Republican candidate in October because you don't want to take a brand new person, put him into that job, and also tell him he's got to raise a bunch of money and and run for the Senate. It's tempting. If there was an ideal candidate. That would be a tempting candidate. Well, you're, talk, you're talking about a you're talking about a Republican bench that has no bench strength at all in New Jersey. I mean, to find a a suitable conservative Republican out of New Jersey to fill this spot as the GOP may want them, that animal just doesn't exist in New Jersey. Wait, wait, wait. is Bruce Springsteen a Republican? No. Oh, That's darn. Yet, no. By the way, for the record. John Bon Jovi, not a Republican, although it would be an interesting appointment. Uh, <laughs> Congressman Al, you know, we, we, we've, we've seen this before, and we've talked about civility. We've talked about civility on the show. We've talked about parties working together. We've talked about this ad nauseum. And yet, an opportunity comes up where that brass ring's right there, and none of the parties seem to want to grab it. No. Well, we're in the middle of of the time when that's not what people are doing, and uh, we're in the middle of a time when they when your own party throws rocks at you if you if you try. So it's, it's not an ideal time to try and be bipartisan. Christie, on the other hand, uh, having having done it, you know, done the stroll with the president, uh, is in a position to, I think, appoint. As the Republican, I'm sure it'll be a Republican, not a Democrat, a moderate. That would be enough to make the right wing continue to bristle, and I'm not at all sure that having them rustling in the weeds uh, uh, isn't isn't helpful to a, a guy like Christie. Uh, and 
but but he's but he's still on with the Republicans. But, but we're not getting it from we're not getting confirmation from several sources saying that uh, Christie is in fact not going to put a Republican in that seat. Uh, that being the case, uh, you know, do you go back to possibly former governors? We talk, or even for you know um, the uh, former basketball player Bill um, Bradley. Bill Bradley. Do you go to a Bill Bradley, maybe, a former senator who could f- keep the seat warm until November? Uh, Bradley do you- doesn't want to do that. Yeah. Bradley's not going to come back for uh, for a short period of time. He he yeah. was very happy at the time to get out of the yes, Senate. Yes, he was. And, uh, and, and he's not going to come back into the, into, into the mess that we have now. Do, do, we, do we see a, again, complete off-the-chart nomination? Do, does he go and say, you know what? I'm going to make everybody happy. I'm going to put an independent in there. Denise, does that make sense? No. <laughs> why? Tell us why. <laughs> it makes no one happy. That's yeah, right. it's exactly it. It makes, it, it makes nobody happy. But, you know, Christie has always been Christie, which means he's always been different. You know, we may be hearing right now that he's not going to put anybody in that seat, but I can guarantee you. That no, the report. The report we're hearing is, is that not that he's not going to put anybody in that seat. Mm-hmm. It's that he's not going to put a Republican in that seat, which lends itself to either an independent or a Democrat. Which also lends itself to a lot of phone calls being made right now to the governor's mansion in New Jersey, going whiskey tank a foxtrot. <laughs> so let's see what happens. But Alan Moore, we've seen Chris Christie before. Those phone calls fall on deaf ears. Chris Christie is. Chris Christie. You know, I'm not prepared to buy yet the notion that he's not going to put a Republican in there for the next five months. And uh, until I see something that, that I find convincing, I don't, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it. So you're I, hedging your bets on this one. You're saying... I'm not hedging my bets. I'm assuming, expecting him to put a Republican in there, but I'm guessing that it will be a Republican caretaker, not the presumed Republican candidate or somebody who's interested in running in the primary and in October. He did say at a press conference in Trenton yesterday that when pressed on it, he said more than likely he will not put somebody in that will be on the ballot in October. And that's what I'm saying. That that he did come out and say. But there's still a lot of ambiguity running around this. Um, Al Swift, you're Chris Christie. What do you do? I would appoint a moderate Republican in order to keep the uh, the right wing abuzz, which I think is the useful to it. Keep the rest of the party happy, and uh, and then wait for the election. Denise Scrap. Following with the congressman said. Bob Hines. I take him what I think I what I think his word is that uh, he's going to appoint nobody, and uh, in our, in in August there'll be a primary. <laughs> Where does he say he's going to appoint nobody? One little headline on CNN. We, you know, well, we, we've got we've got several sources right now. I mean, they're saying I, I'll, I'll take him on his word when I hear him say it. I just can't. It, it makes no sense, and I haven't heard him say it, so I'm not going to go there. Yeah, when no. He, when he says it, I, I think he will appoint somebody, but it's going to be completely outside the box, which is the mo of Governor Christie to begin mm-hmm. with. Um, bottom line, though, uh, Alan Moore, does this hurt Christie? Any decision he makes, does this hurt Christie? I, you know, I want to come back to what Al said. 
uh, right off the bat. I think that this is, you know, a big hot story here in D.C. for a few days. Uh, I don't see it unless he makes some major screw up as a as a big issue down the road uh, for for this uh, uh, for the state of New Jersey election this year and next year or anything uh, significant about 2016. But just to, I, I just want to go back to what we were talking about earlier, and it's called counting votes here in D.C. And that's why the, Repub- why the Republicans are going to be making phone calls up to the governor's mansion, because they are going to try to do several pieces of legislation in the Senate. And the question is going to be whether or not they have the votes. How have they whipped it, and what do those whipping numbers look like to make sure that people get what they want? Bob, you're, you're looking well, with an awkward eye there. I just, my, my view is... I have two thoughts. Number one, I saw the re- I saw the remark, the quote that the, uh, the senator from uh, Nevada had, quote that uh, he was he was in effect saying he heard what what the uh, what the governor said about not making an appointment, and he thinks that's the right that's the right thing to do. I expect that uh, I expect that's what he's going to do. Interesting choice. Uh, you know, you got to love Chris Christie though. When Chris Christie was talked uh, was asked about the special primary and the special election uh, coming up. Uh, He was asked literally about the public outcry of the money and the process. Chris Christie's quote, he said, I don't know what the costs are, and quite frankly, I don't care. (laughs) Again, you almost wish that we had more of that in Washington. Al, you're you're nodding your head yes. I don't think I've seen you this adamant about a Republican. I'm adamant, uh, only to the extent that I think he's a very dangerous Republican as far as the, the Democrats are concerned, because he's very good, and and one of the things he's good at is is, is candor. Uh, some of it is probably not as candid as it would appear to be, but he makes it look damned candid, and uh, and, and in, a, in an era when. The public is increasingly believing that all politicians are crooks and no one ever talks straight. Uh, the contrast with uh, with Christie is strong. Interesting point. Interesting point. Alan Moore, last word. Yeah, you you said that. Uh, here's a guy who said it doesn't matter. Uh, I don't care what it costs. It's the right thing to do. And you said, where's that sentiment in Washington? I would say that sentiment is all over Washington. <laughs> Part of our problem. Who cares what it costs? Spend it. It'll be good for us. <laughs> Touche. Touche. Uh, that that that's fantastic. Uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to switch up a little bit. We're going to talk about the IRS hearings that were going on today and the follow-on to the IRS scandal. Apparently, you can get talks about how to improve your management style with art at the IRS. <laughs> And they'll spend $50 million doing it. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. I thought the, uh, the, uh, the video... Of the wow, we opened up a fast waller. Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu. 
the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town yeah. Republicans are disappointed because they thought an 18-month term of service would give a Republican a possible uh, uh, ability to, 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 to give Booker, assuming he's the, the, uh, the candidate, a tough race. But we're going to have an election in October. The Democrats have said, way to go, Christy, because they figure they're going to win in October. They'll have somebody from October to next November and then another election. But I haven't seen anything saying he's not going to going to elect appoint in this five months a Republican. I think he will appoint a Republican 
and it will likely be somebody who's obviously a caretaker. It's not going to be somebody who's a sitting representative or sitting in in the in the state in the state house somewhere who's going to give up their future for five months service in in the Senate. It's, it it completely sounds like kind of a thank you to some longtime Republican like a former Governor Kane or somebody else that we haven't even been thinking about. I, I, I personally. I agree. I would love to see him appoint Christine Todd Whitman. I think she would be fantastic for it, and it would be good for her. She knows New Jersey. She knows the politics of the state. However, my argument to you, Alan, is that if there is one person on the national political stage that could spin appointing somebody outside his own party using the mantra of, look, the people of New Jersey elected a Democrat. Although it was Frank Lautenberg, they appoint, they, they elect a person. If we appoint a Democrat, we're going to have the party fulfill the term of the former Senator Lautenberg. This is what is in the best interest of the state. It is the will of the people. He can spin that all day long. You disagree with me? I think that would be garbage. Why? I don't think it would be credible, Why? and I don't see him doing it. Why? Did he? You, don't, you don't. You don't elect parties to to office. You elect people to office. Explain that to the he RNC will, and the DNC. He, he will. He will pick the NRA. No, RNC. RNC. Al, stay with us. What is this? Denise Krebs, you got some. All right. Well, when you talk about spinning, Christie is already spinning. According to the New York Times, Christie, when when asked about the question of the cost of the election said the expense cannot be measured against the value of the United States. Having an elected representative in the United States says so many consequential issues are being debated and determined this year. To me, that says he wants somebody who is elected, not somebody who he can get tarred and feathered with. But that's going to happen regardless. That's going to happen in October. What happens between now and October? There is still a state law that says that he has got to appoint a senator to fulfill at least till special election. Well, no. You can't leave a vacant seat. Yes, but you can. No, I think you can, but he won't. He won't. I think he will. Everybody else thinks he won't. And I think it will be a Republican, not an independent, not a Democrat. I can't. Maybe there's historically been an, been an example of somebody, some governor, appointing uh, to a vacancy somebody from uh, the from the opposite party. But I don't remember one. It almost never happens. That's why people worry about. Gee, should we take this sitting senator and put him into the cabinet? Oh my gosh, we can't do that because there's a, a Republican or there's a there's a partisan of the other political party in the in the governor's office, and they'll appoint that will will change the mix in the Senate. Well, it, it, that's how it works. That's what the expectation is, and he would be stupid to to go against that history, all for the sake of. Five months of somebody who's a lame duck, regardless. Bob Hines. Well, it strikes me. He said he we, he has said that he's not going to re, a, appoint a, a Republican. Republican. No, yeah. he has not said that. He, he said I will not appoint a Republican or anybody else for 18 months. That's all he has said. It, it had to do with the timing of up to November of next year, not the next five months. He has said nothing about the next five months. Yeah, I I. I I, I hear what you're saying. I disagree. Just based off of what we've seen already. I'll bet you ten thousand oh, dollars. I'm glad you have that. I'm glad you have that kind of cash, Governor Romney. I gotta tell you something. This is good radio, folks. This is why we do this. Uh, I, I gotta tell you something. 
I, it, it would not surprise me at all, because, and this is what just ticks the living bejesus out of the RNC and the conservative Republicans in the party. They can't corral Chris Christie. Now, you can say Chris Christie's own interests are Chris Christie. You can say they're selfish. You can say whatever they want. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. We're going to take a quick break here. We'll be right back in about two minutes. Stay with us. Everybody knows Shelly's Back Room for its corporate events, its happy hours, its famous campfire wings and spurred cigars and drinks. But what you didn't know is that Shelly's is open during the weekend, too. In fact, Shelly's Back Room on the weekends even has a non-smoking section. You can bring your family, your kids, enjoy the same campfire wings and same glorious food that you enjoy during the week, but without the famous Shelly's Cigar environment. Also during the weekend, it's football season. That means a lot of the regulars come down and enjoy their drinks and their favorite cigars, all while watching their favorite local teams, whether it's the Ravens, the Redskins, on several HD screens throughout the place. So remember, Shelly's Back Room. It's not just for happy hours anymore. 1331 F Street, the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., official sponsor of Backroom Politics. On the elevation, on the shelf, they misbehaving. Saving my love for you, and you, especially you, yeah. I know for certain, the one I love, I'm through with flirting, it's you that I'm thinking of. Ain't misbehaving, saving all my love for you. Like Jack Horner, in a corner, don't go nowhere. To backroom politics while we're picking various members up off the floor, it seems that the preceding discussion so bored Bob, he fell asleep in his chair and fell over backwards. And so we all rushed to his aid. He is fine, as you will hear soon, assuming that Alan doesn't tell him he's wrong one more time. One more time, time right. Can I, can I take control back, Al? <coughs> Thank you. Thank you. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. I didn't get it right now. You got to get that part. Go ahead, Carl Dubin. I think this is really an interesting situation because I think that Christie would like to pick someone who is going to vote for the gun restriction, who's going to vote for immigration. And, you know, he can advise somebody that this is what I'd like you to do, but once you're appointed, you can't you can't control them. Well, you know, 
we'll, we'll finish this up here real quick because I don't want to bore Congressman Allen these mundane <laughs> political discussions that could affect votes in the Senate. I know how you feel about the Senate anyway, Congressman. True. Yeah, so <laughs> no wonder. Thus, your boredom. I apologize. This Senate talk, but you know, because we never get any kind of great, colorful excitement out of Alan Moore. Well, when you put when you put the Senate and New Jersey together, you know. yeah. Well, because you can't fit. It's the petrochemical state on the license plate. Hey, uh, let, let's let's finish this up here real quick. Hey, I can say that I was born in Jersey. Um, Real quick, let's finish this up real quick. I, I still believe, and I want to go back to this last point. I, if there's anybody on the national stage that can do it, spin it, and do it the way that would be politically amenable to everybody, I think it's Christy. Alan, uh, Al, Congressman Al. I think, as you stated, you are absolutely correct. If it could be done, Christy is maybe the guy that could do it. Yeah. I think Alan is correct that it's not going to happen. Now, well, we will see. We will obviously, we will be cashing in that ten thousand dollar bet. Can I? Can I? I obviously can pay you in Hungarian money. <laughs> can you pay Wait, but Bob his bottle of wine first? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe Two we should just say ten dollars. Ten dollars worth. That I can afford. That might make it more, uh, um, more, more realistic. Oh. There's one guy who could have pulled it off even better than Christie. But he's not running and going to be running. That would be yeah. Bill Clinton. He was the. Uh, he's oh, the one. The, the one yeah. guy with the. Uh, with the golden tongue, who uh, uh, in so many ways. Um, <laughs> Alan, family so, show. I, I didn't mean to, oh to get into the Mike Lord. Douglas business. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's move on to something. I think I'm going to fall over again. I, 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 I was blown down by that, and I'm 350. Hey, let's. Wait, wait, wait. I want to. Let me assess what you just said here. You were what? Uh, I was blown down. Blown down. Okay, well. Okay. Good Lord. Uh, I'll clean it up, folks. Clean wow. It up. Okay. Too let's late get, for that. Let's talk about another scandal. Let's talk about the IRS for a second because this is a lot of fun. Uh, just when you thought that things down at the IRS building down on Constitution Avenue couldn't get any more interesting, oh, they spent $50 million on conferences, including speakers on how to improve your management skills through artwork and sketches by Bono and, and Michael Jordan and, and other dignitaries of that ilk. Um, Bob, if you are the commissioner of the IRS right now, do you just throw your hands up and go, I can't win? I don't know I'd say that, but I would say this. I got a bunch of people who are rotten line dancers, and I've seen them doing it. <laughs> My God, the way they're spending money, and I must say, I don't believe for a minute that this is something that just started happening five years ago. I believe this has been going on, and it just shows how much the bureaucracy is just off on a tangent. Anytime it wants to do something, it doesn't. I want to talk to Denise Krepp for a second. Denise, you were general counsel at a uh, a DOT under the Maritime Administration. You know how this game works. What do you think about this? This has got to be very interesting in your eyes. Well, if I was the acting IRS, I would be calling whoever is in charge of my contracting shop and saying, I want a quick review of all existing contracts that you have signed. I want training for all of my contracting officers. Not only do I want training, but I want ethics trainings for all of my contracting officers, and I want it on a yearly basis, and I want it reported. Based on what I've seen in the administration, I think that there is additional contracting um, training that could be done. Uh, um, you know, going back to what Bob just said, this didn't just happen under the Democratic 
administration. This has been going on for years, and there needs to be a complete and utter overhaul of the existing contracting shops, not only in the IRS, but throughout the administration. Carl Tubin. I think, unfortunately, I think if you look at some of the other departments, you're probably going to find the same thing. Uh, leadership workshops, whatever. Uh, you had it at. Uh, you had it at GSA. GSA. You had it at TSA. You've had it at DOD. Right. Exactly. But but I mean, Alan Moore, you first. Yeah. Um, there were 220 meetings and about 49 million bucks. Uh, meetings were costing on the average of a little over $200,000 each. Although there were some that were quite large that were costing apparently uh, four million or so when you brought in a lot of people. Yeah, I'm not about to start defending the stuff that happened. I'm just trying to keep it in, in some perspective. The line dancing which is pretty embarrassing for the individuals. Somebody paid $1,600 for apparently a you know, cell phone quality uh, uh, a video there, but, but it was a two-year time period, 2008 to 2010, that was right on the heels of the, the GSA uh, uh, idiocy in Las Vegas uh, that prompted for the president to say no, no more trips to uh, Las Vegas, prompting Harry Reid to say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, wait a minute." Um, I, I'm not a defender of these things. I think that 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 because it was so visible and so embarrassing that that uh, agencies across the spectrum said, "We don't want to be GSA. We don't want to do this." I don't know what's happened at IRS since 2010, but I think that. We're, we're kind of, in terms of this particular piece, looking back at something that's probably not, hasn't disappeared, but is happening a lot less. Uh, Congressman, uh, Congressman Al first. Congressman Al, you know, we, we've got, Daryl Issa, we know how much of a fan you are of, of Chairman Issa. Mm -hmm. uh, we have Chairman Issa who's basically coming out and saying, look, the IRS investigation into the political entity, into the Tea Party organizations out of Laguna Niguel, California, out of out of Cincinnati, those were directed by Washington D.C. This was a political hit job. Uh, Ways and Means has now come out and named the official again of of interest, and that is a gentleman named uh, Joseph Grant, who was in charge of the political nonprofit division at IRS here on Constitution Avenue. They're now starting to name names. Is there a smoking gun? Is this as big a deal as the Republicans would like to make? I think it is uh, rampant incompetence. I don't think there's a great plot. <clears throat> I think it's stupidity. Uh, and I think that uh, a, a lot of these mid to lower level bureaucrats do not get sufficient supervision. And, uh, and hence, they, they go on merrily along their way, and they get a little farther away from sanity, and a little farther away, a little farther away, and then finally it explodes at some point, sometimes years and years later. And then, then we call it a scandal, and we start looking for some head, head whose name people will recognize that we can make gold, when in fact, uh, everybody has been complicit in not keeping an eye on what's going on in these agencies. And Did he's cracked? It is complicity. I mean, you and I both served in the Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard had a little bit of a scandal about four or five years ago 
dealing with a deep water horizon. I'm not talking about Louisiana. I'm talking about their acquisition program because the, they outsourced The deep water it. program. They, they outsourced it, and they lost millions and billions of dollars because they didn't have proper control over their acquisition and their contracts. Now, that was, you know, actually it was about four or five years ago. That was about five or six years ago. I can't tell you what I, I saw over the weekend. I was looking at a solicitation um, from an agency which referenced another agency that hasn't been in existence for 30 years. They literally said in the solicitation, if you have any questions about a certain issue, contact this agency. Well, how are you going to contact an agency that hasn't been in existence for 30 years? To me, that says you keep reusing old paperwork, old documents, and you're not updating, you're not renewing, you're not saying, hey, maybe we ought to be doing something a little bit different. But, Alan Moore, when we look at the idea of was this just gross incompetence or was this a political job, there seems to be smoke around the political job saying that, you know, this this was ordered by D.C. You know, we, it remains to be seen how high up this went. Um, we do know that the former commissioner uh, made 156 reported visits to the White House over a period of a few years. That's a lot of visits. For an IRS commissioner? Um, for an IRS commissioner when the, his predecessor came once or twice a year. So th that is going to – and then that same guy uh, didn't seem to remember much when he was he was asked. Uh, so I think there's plenty of room for some political uh, direction here, carefully guarded and hidden and shaded, and plenty of opportunity, plenty of uh, potential for incompetence, as, as, as Al talks about. The problem for the White House is they want the federal government's role to expand, and these things eat at public view of the credibility and capability of the executive branch. It's a much bigger problem than just the IRS. But, but Bob Hines, we have Lois Lerner, who gave her testimony last, uh, about a week and a half ago in front of uh, House Oversight Committee, and she introduced her, she gave an opening remark, and then once she was done with her opening remarks, decided to invoke her Fifth Amendment right, which caused a lot of people to just go off. Uh, they then asked her, Chairman Ice asked her, as part of her remarks package, she submitted previous remarks that she had done just months before to the same committee. She was asked, are these your remarks? She acknowledged. They said, will you stand by these remarks? She acknowledged. Will you talk about these remarks? Invoke their Fifth Amendment rights. As an attorney, did she violate or did she have the right to invoke her Fifth Amendment rights even though she gave opening remarks, testimony in front of the committee? Yes, I think so. Really? Yes. Why? But she did not go into any of the issues that are, you know, that are, uh, that, are the issue, uh, that are the reason they're holding the hearing. She did not go with any specifics, dates, times, places, events, statements, nothing. She gave a broad statement, and then she, and, and which, is, which is, I would think was just generalization, and then she said, I want to exhort, it put forth my, first, my Fifth Amendment rights, and I think she has a right to do that. Denise, you were general counsel on a committee. Do you agree? Yes. Really? How so? She didn't go into additional details. She, she kept it short. She kept it sweet. She can do it. I mean, 
She didn't go into the details that she, they needed her to go into or they wanted her to go into. She gave a brief opening sentence and then said, or opening paragraph, and then said, that's it. I'm not answering anything else. And you can do that. Yeah. You can do that under committee, under committee rules. Would it, could, it's uh, not committee it's rules. Not committee it's rules. First Amendment rights. First Amendment. Is it? Okay. It's Fifth Amendment. Fifth Amendment. Fifth Amendment, Fifth Amendment rights. Right. Yeah. But, but, I mean, I mean, could the committee have held her in contempt of Congress at that point? No? No, because then you set up a constitutional argument because committee rules don't trump the Constitution. The Constitution trumps the committee. All right. What, Alan Moore. What typically happens in these cases, from, from my limited understanding of it, is that generally if a person is going to invoke the Fifth Amendment, they do it from the outset, creating these really absurd notions of, what state your name, please? I'm sorry, at, at the advice of counsel, uh, I'm in, going to invoke. But I think once upon a time, the thought was you can answer some questions, but if you get into really sensitive areas about the charges and information that might be known to you, that you do not have to incriminate yourself. So what was happening is she took this liberty to throw a statement out there that having said that, of course the House could hold her in contempt. Would it stand up? Who knows? Would they look a little silly? They probably concluded yes, because otherwise they would have said, "Hey, let's do it." But they, they, they can, they can do what they will. I, I don't, but I don't see that it would have worked in their advantage. And, and, and so they hold her in contempt. What does that mean? It's not a judge holding her in contempt and throwing her in jail. Congressman Al, I probably should save this for telling me a story. <clears throat> I believe that when looking back on this. Uh, a few months or a few years from now, we're going to find that uh, that, that Congress made a, uh, a mound out of a molehill, and the media made it into a small hill. Really, <laughs> Carl Tubin. Following up on that, you know, we had we had reports last week saying that uh, when 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 they were taking the depositions or the whatever from the uh, people in the IRS, they said that they found some discrepancies in some of those uh, parties that they uh, investigated. Plus the fact that you've had over the years, uh, over the recent years, you've had liberal groups investigated. You have had veterans organizations investigated. And and plus the fact that I think the the chairman of this committee, uh, who over the weekend called the press secretary the president a liar, and a few other things, and I, I kind of think that this is almost getting to the point of overreaching and whether whether hurting themselves. Denise Crap. If I was Machiavellian, um, I would actually say that part of the reason that folks are focusing on the IRS is because they want to put them into such a tizzy that they can't focus on the Obama health care plan. The IRS has a huge role in developing that new health care uh, plan and its rollout, so that can explain part of the visits because they are part of the team that is developing this. So if you have an IRS uh, or the head of the IRS is spending the majority of his or her time trying to defend what's going on out in Ohio and then can't work on what's going on with health care, then you create a nice little split of priorities and ability to provide leadership. Bob Hines. Well, I would uh, I'll say something about what Denise just said. I'm not so sure that... I think there may well be something in what she says, but it's, it's also true that whatever is there, and I don't know what is there, needs to be concluded. 
I mean, I don't think anybody said, oh, let's just start this because this will give, this will make it a difficult thing to get uh, Obamacare working. It may well be, that may very well be in some people's minds today, but the opportunity was thrown on the floor by what's been going on within the administration. But Congressman Allen. So, you know, and one oh. more point. One of the things that I find interesting, I saw this, I guess, maybe three or four days ago. I gather that, it's, uh, you know, we're talking about all these um, uh, Tea Party-type organizations of having their their uh, their right to have a a, 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 a tax credit, tax benefit uh, program here. But the fact of the matter is, when uh, the the, the Hussein, when, when, the, when the Barack Obama organization got set up and wanted the same thing, they got theirs just like that in a month. So I got it, you know, that just stinks. The yeah, idea I mean, that they can get it just like that and somebody else can't tells you that there's political activity going on all over the place in there. Well, we, we've, we've, heard, we've heard both sides argue, look, you know, for every, you know, crossroads, there's a, there's a Democratic side. We keep hearing all kinds of things about this. What's surprising a lot of people, though, Congressman now, is that the person who was heading up that division is now on paid administrative leave. She has not been fired. She has not been called in. She is on paid administrative leave. She's making money sitting at home. Is that the right decision? Did the Obama administration make a good call in that? Or was this just another bad maneuver in, in an organization that can't get out of its own way in getting in front of a crisis. Well, look, that's a very, very weird thing that she did, and uh, we'll learn more in time about about that. Uh, and, and when we know that, then we may know whether the various things were going on, or whether you come back to Taylor's first law. <laughs> Go ahead, John yeah, Moore. In, in defense of this poor woman, um, she she was not in the job when the big the biggest sins were being committed curiously the person who was in that job is now overseeing <laughs> the development of most of the obamacare stuff she's still working in place i'll bet she's got a conflict of how she's spending her time but but uh uh that's kind of her own uh, her her own personal challenge she'll be we'll be hearing from her or somebody will be hearing from her in due time as as opposed to the woman who decided to take the fifth um the administration did not have does not have the power to fire her so the question is what do you do with her do you just say oh too bad never mind keep working away well, or she wouldn't be the first we, official we that's have been to, pushed to go resign they asked her to resign She's got enough years where she could retire, and, but then she's totally out there on her own. I don't blame her for saying, I'm not going to quit. I don't think I did anything wrong. I invoked my constitutional rights. And they said, oh, man, we're, we, our hands are tied. We have limited options. We're going to put her on paid administrative leave. That's where she is now. But I don't think that we can criticize the higher-ups at Treasury for, for using, I think, the, the, you know, one of two options available. Look away and let her stay, or put her on leave. Carl Tubin. You know, I, I, some of us have said, you know, this this thing hope, hopefully it would go away at some point. Uh, I don't think it's going to go away because I think the chairman of this committee is hell bent on finding something, whether he has to manufacture it, 
whether he has to fashion it, whatever. He wants to find something that says the White House did it. And it might come to that. And again, you know, but he's, he is just no bet. Then he's crap. And I'm willing to bet, uh, following what Alan just said, that um, they made a political decision to put her on, on administrative leave because they were afraid that if they didn't put her on administrative leave and they tried to fire her, that she would sue the administration. And if she sued the administration, then her lawyers could request a lot of documents, and those documents could then become public. So what they decided to do is put her on administrative leave, let this process work its way through, then if there is cause to fire her, and they will, if there is cause, develop that cause through their own internal investigation, then they will be able to do so. And when she does file suit against them and it goes before the MSPB, then they will be able to defend themselves at MSPB. They're buying time. Both sides are buying time right now. But Alan Moore, doesn't it seem like they're just putting a Kleenex box on a hand grenade at that point? Oh, we're... We don't know who's trying to hide what here. It's possible that no one is trying to hide anything. Possible but unlikely. It comes back to the issue we talked about before. It sounds like there was some incompetence here and some lack of sensitivity. It wouldn't surprise me, though, and this is the, the, the question, how high did knowledge go? Right. How, from where did the direction and decision-making come? Right. We don't yet know, and that's the purpose of an investigation. I'm not defending everything that, that Daryl Issa does, but it's not just Issa who's looking. It's also the Senate Finance Committee and the House Ways and Means Committee. They have jurisdiction over the IRS. They're very interested in this, too. Bob Hines, I'm going to give you the last word. I think, uh, quite frankly, that uh, Issa is uh, over-enthusiastic from time to time. There's no doubt about it. I think Carl's right. The fact of the matter is, there are serious investigations going on by maybe more serious people. We don't know what's happening, going to be happening. I think one of the reasons, if I were the government, I would have kept the uh, Ms. Lerner on the payroll as well, because it helps her not to talk. And it, it is to their advantage that she not talk, because if she were not being paid and uh, needed to make some money and decided to talk, uh, you don't know what might come out, and that might be very embarrassing. So I, I can understand the administration's position. It's reasonable, and it's and I can also understand the fact that uh, uh, the the investigation is being done not just by Mr. Issa and his committee, but by more responsible groups, and I suspect that more, more will come out. This thing seems to be going on for some time. Well, all right, Alan Moore, just, Yeah, I just want one thought about, about Ms. Lerner. So we don't know just what she knows. Um, but we know she knows some things that we'd all like to get at. And her, what, what she's presumably doing via her lawyers is talking to the, to the various committees saying, give me immunity and I will talk to you. And that will happen, I suspect. Um, and then eventually, one way or the other, we're going to know what, what, uh, what, what she knew. But she didn't want to just give it up and expose herself further. Well, that's right. Well, well, we're going to be keeping an eye, obviously. This is not a story that's going away anytime soon. So we'll keep an eye on this. Uh, when we come back, we're going to have our international affairs expert, Dr. Ralph Winnie, joining us. We're going to talk about some developing international news, including the upcoming Chinese president's visit to Washington and interesting developments coming out of the Middle East. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. 
But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. Developing story right now out of Trenton 
is that he will he is now saying that he will appoint somebody by next week. Uh, now that pretty much takes ten dollars out of Bob's pocket. Now the big question is, will it be a Republican or not? I didn't want me to bet. Oh, oh, I thought you did. Oh, I was just up to. Yeah. Uh, crap. He's still waiting for you were covering him. Oh, I, okay. he's still waiting for a bottle of wine. Yay. Uh, we've got we've got big international news coming on uh, on several fronts. Uh, joining us right now is uh, Dr. Ralph Winnie. He is the he is the chairman of the China programs at the Eurasia Center. Uh, he is a bar certified attorney in D.C. in the great state of New York. Dr. Ralph, thank you for joining us as always. Well, I'm glad I'm able to make it. I just got back last night from Turkey and Azerbaijan, so mm. it's great to be here with well, everybody. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, let's start with China first. Okay. Uh, I, I made the comment he's coming to D.C. He's not coming to D.C. Uh, the new Chinese premier, the new Chinese president is in fact coming to California That's for correct. tax visits, yes. uh, not D.C. Um, how important is this meeting? in China-U.S. relations, and is the government going to make some efforts to at least bring high-level state officials from from Washington to meet with the president? Certainly, it's a very important meeting. Um, you talk to Governor Brown in, in California, um, they have just created a new uh, trade office to deal directly with China so they can bring Chinese companies over to interact with Californian companies to help improve uh, the economy in California, which hasn't been doing too well. Um, so there are a lot of California companies that are focused on uh, finding uh, joint venture partners with the Chinese companies. From a national perspective, you've got um, the U.S. government that really wants to hold China accountable on cybersecurity and also on intellectual property. But at the same time, you've got the dynamics at the state level, which is saying we want uh, we want the Chinese business in our state to help um, improve our economy. Well, you, you touched on the subject we want to bring up is the cybersecurity issue. The cyber cybersecurity has been a big problem with the Chinese relationship with the U.S. Beijing's having to backtrack a lot right. on saying that it's not government-sponsored, it's just a 14-year-old eating hot right. pockets in his mom's basement. We have several reports here in the U.S. that are saying that's actually not true, it's government-sponsored. Is, is China caught between a rock and a hard spot as far as trying to engage for that economic benefit, at the same time still trying to convince people on the Hill that, hey, our technology isn't a direct line to Beijing? Well, certainly. That's that's the big issue. And John Frisbee, the chairman of the U.S.-China Business Council, has said that uh, this issue of cybersecurity attacks has got to be addressed at the highest level because it has the potential to, to disrupt constructive trade relations. At the same time, the state dynamics in California is playing out to the extent that um, small and medium-sized companies are, are really looking to a Chinese foreign direct investment to come into the state to help improve uh, economic conditions. So that's, and again, that's the dynamic. You have very aggressive states that are really pushing for direct investment with China that are sort of willing to overlook issues of cybersecurity and intellectual property to be able to get the money into, uh, into their state. Denise Krepp, uh, you were former, you, you were former uh, counsel on the Homeland Security Committee in the House. Uh, cybersecurity, obviously a big ticket item here in Washington, D.C. Uh, how tenuous is the cybersecurity situation in regards to dealing with the government in Beijing? I think it's very tenuous. I, I, uh, we're very concerned about 
what they're doing. We're very concerned about who is doing it and very concerned about what they know that we don't know they know about. But I'd like to get uh, to what you started talking about, about state interests in China. I don't know if you saw the Washington Post article today about Smithfield hams. You're probably yeah. saying, what does a ham have to do with China? Well, China just bought Smithfield ham. Smithfield ham is a huge, huge pork producer here in the United States. So all of a sudden, you have a Chinese company that owns a staple. I mean, it is a staple. We've all had ham in our house, and it's usually a Smithfield ham. So this is a brilliant maneuver, in my thought, on the part of the Chinese to buy a U.S. company with a U.S. brand to be saying to folks, hey, we're not as bad as you think we are. Congressman now. I was just wondering whether Carl has ham in his house. Mm. <laughs> oh, come on. Stop. Uh, uh, well, you know, it, 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 this does bring up an interesting point, though. Uh, Ralph, Ralph, when, when we look at the acquisition of the Chinese uh, organization that bought Smithfield, Scipius right. um, did not get involved. Right. It was not a Scipius issue. Right. However, a lot of people in the ad community are saying, wait a minute, this is just a pipeline, not so much for them to export the quality pork into China. It's more of an avenue for them to bring Chinese pork here to the U.S. Yeah. How valid is that concern? Well, certainly it's very valid. I think the, the Chinese pork industry was severely um, impacted by what's called Blue Ear disease. And uh, for in certain provinces, um, they basically uh, were running out of pork, and they were looking for a foreign company uh, like Smithfield to come in and help them revamp their whole pork industry. And that was very difficult, so they've been looking at other, other acquisition opportunities, including uh, acquisition of Smith, Smithfield. So the key when you have when these Chinese companies uh, come over and, and want to invest and work in the U.S. They've got to be very active and involved in the community um, to bring people on board of, um, to show that the Chinese are not out to steal technology, that they are working very closely in, to improving the quality of lives of everyone in the community. Denise Crap. And this will be very interesting to see uh, about what they do as far as who their leadership and their management is, because the traditional uh, management structure in Africa, as Ralph knows, is that they bring in all the Chinese leadership. So it's Chinese leadership with Chinese workers working in Africa with maybe some local folks. They're not going to be able to do right. that here in the United States. They're not going to be able to, you know, doesn't fit the Chinese in. business model. Yeah, it, right. it's not the Chinese business model. So it'll be fascinated to watch how they morph their business model with pork. I mean, it's a strange thing, but it's a brilliant way to get in and to learn the U.S. system. Because right. it's always an issue with the Chinese. How many? How much of their uh, staff can they bring over to run the company versus having to hire uh, locally? But and they don't necessarily understand that there is a problem in the U.S. If if uh, they bring in their own people and they don't get active and involve the community, but you know, Governor Brown starting this China initiative right. has not scored a lot of points with some in Silicon Valley, saying, right. "Look, you're basically bringing the enemy onto our shores and walking them with open arms." Yeah. How does the tech community get solid with what Governor Brown's trying to propose? Look, they're direct competition in many aspects. Right. I think that he's going to have to help them gain access, market access in China and make Can it work. Can you do that? Well, I think it remains to be seen. I think it's certainly a first step. Um, bringing all, and the fact that the Chinese premier is coming to California is a good sign. But, it, but it's going to take time. It's not uh, Maryland set up in, in their early 80s, and it took a while before their programs got going. So 
Um, but California ha- is positioning itself the right way. Then he's crap. I, I don't know. California is definitely positioning itself, and, and one of the issues that it's positioning itself on is it needs more foreign investment because all the domestic folks are fleeing to Texas, they're fleeing to Nevada, they're fleeing to other more tax-beneficial states. So if you can't get the U.S. companies to come in, you need somebody else for those jobs. And if it's going to be the Chinese, then Governor Brown is going to have to bring them in. But that being said, if he does bring them in, he has to flex those muscles back in China to make sure that the folks he does have in the United in California remain in the California. But Alan Moore's former uh, commerce official, it, it, it's, it's a weird dynamic because what you've got here now is those that are in direct competition wanting to come here, finding the tax breaks don't matter, obviously, to Chinese corporations. They want to go where it's popular. They're finding good allies and people like Governor Brown, Governor O'Malley. Is, is this posing a strange dichotomy as far as getting companies like Apple, like IBM, like um, any of the tech manufacturers to bring it back in sourcing into America? They're going to bring it back when it makes economic sense to bring it back. The Chinese are going to invest here when it makes economic sense to invest here. I remember not that many years ago, 25 or so years ago, we were we were deathly afraid of the Japanese car industry. We set up quotas with Japanese cars. You can only bring in a certain number. They were they were all the they were the low end cars at the time. We set a quota and they said, "Oh, we can bring in a certain number of cars. Let's make better cars, higher profit margins on these cars." They adjusted to the marketplace. Before long, we were begging Japanese to 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 manufacture their cars in, in our state and then the German manufacturers. Um, and, and, uh, and I think that, that w- w- what we'll see here is in, in, uh, with China, if, if you've got companies that will come in here to this country, make significant investments that will, that will, that will be beneficial in particular parts of the country, you're going to find people competing to get them in. The Smithfield acquisition, I don't know if that's brilliant or not. I don't know how much they paid. I don't know if they paid top dollar. I don't know who, what, the, what the competitors were. And it's not like they're going to take all this pork that's produced here and just start shipping it overseas. It's not the, it's, it's not, shipping gigantic meat carcasses is not, is not the, 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 the high profit uh, industry for export. My guess is they're buying knowledge and, and techniques that they were somehow not otherwise able to get. It doesn't. It doesn't threaten me at all, and it's not up to to the governor of California to say we want some reciprocity. That's up to the federal government to say here are the ground rules for 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 investment in the U.S. and we want some reciprocity uh, in in the other direction. We don't always get it, but that's that's the objective. Ralph, what what is what does the president of China have to do in order for this to be successful in the eyes of the business community in China? Um. What what they are gonna what they're gonna have to do is to show their people that um, th- they will be uh, welcome and appreciated when they come to the U.S. That their companies are not gonna have the problems that Huawei and ZTE have had when they've tried to set up operations. Is it a matter of there's gonna be have to be some sort of signed document he's gonna have to go back with? Is it a matter of some sort of trade agreement with the state of California that they're gonna have to? I think they're they're going to have to have um, what Hawaii did, where they had a memo of understanding. Um, Governor Lingle at the time was trying to create a direct airline route so they could bring Chinese tourists uh, coming direct to Hawaii. Is is that going to be the key catalyst for this to be a successful visit for the president? 
yes, they're going to have to have some business uh, deals in effect come out of this. Okay, okay. Let's move on to what's going on in the Middle East. Uh, developing story right now, according to our friends at CNN, uh, the ambassador is defending the uh, the ambassador uh, right now in uh, in Libya is defending the decisions made regarding Benghazi. Uh, that is just coming out right now. Uh, but outside of Benghazi, though, we have the issue of Syria. Uh, Ralph, we've got a very tenuous situation. We've got the French foreign minister who today uh, proclaimed that there are chemical weapons being used, that they are targeted, and that they are being very surgically uh, deployed. Uh, at this point, though, we also have a president that says, hey, we've got a red line drawn. Where are we going to make this get, you know, where are we going to get America involved? Where does America get involved? And do we go against what the French foreign minister is proclaiming? Well, um, at some point, America may have to get get involved. Um, there are a lot of people in this country that are very concerned about um, the number of people that are being killed in Syria. People have been calling it a genocide. Um, but at the same time, um, you've got to have international support in this effort. And still, Russia and China have been have been slow to come on board. And I've always felt that you have to really push the issue of the chemical weapons to get them come on board to be able to secure the country. The, the problem that everyone faces is various countries have different uh, economic and security interests. Certainly the Russians have had a strong relationship with the Syrian government. They don't want to give that up if a multinational force were to come in and uh, maintain order and stability. Well, the, 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 there's a report coming out of the Washington Post today where uh, a, a, uh, a resolution was being brought forward yeah. asking for international aid to support Jordan, that coming out of King Abdullah, out, right. out of Damascus. Um, or, I, I'm sorry, out, out of um, uh, Jordan. 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 Yeah, right. there we, thank you. Uh, when, when the vote came up, when the discussion of the vote came up, right. Uh, the Russian ambassador passed by uh, U.S. U.N. ambassador Susan Rice. She asked the question, "Are you going to block this?" Yeah. His response was, "Well, you block travel to Palestine, basically giving right. there the big, you know, in your yeah. face." Right. It was very, very uh, aggressive and defensive huh. by the Russian ambassador. Uh, That's their style. I mean, you've got to just stand up to them and to throw it back in their face and just say, "Look, you know, what it." It's in all of our do the, Russians, do the Russians understand the, human, the humanitarian crisis that's going on? Not well, just in Jordan. I right. mean, you're talking about the surrounding, you know, border countries right. of Syria. Jordan just happens to be taking the large brunt of it. Well, and that's the whole the whole problem. This conflict is going to spill over into other countries. I mean, Turkey, as we know, has had to absorb a lot of these refugees, and there are the problems in Jordan. Um, Again, the Russians are very concerned about maintaining their role and influence in the region. And one of their last allies is, is uh, the, the Syrian government. And that's why they are so reluctant to come on board, even though they recognize, and I think people in Russia do recognize there's a humanitarian issue. But at the same time, there's strong nationalist pride in Russia that is that is very conscious of the West trying to take advantage, and they're losing their ability to to uh, have a have a hegemony in the Middle East. 
Well, you you were you had mentioned Turkey. Right. Uh, you just came back from Turkey. Yes, I did. Uh, I was in Taksim Square. Okay. Indirectly uh, gap. Tear gap. Okay. Well, so, but don't worry. I drank a lot of scotch, so I'm feeling much better. Okay. <laughs> um, let, let, let's talk. Let's talk about Turkey for a second. Sure. Uh, what was originally a tree protest right. uh, that was anticipated to have maybe a handful of students show right. up has now turned into thousands. Oh, yeah. What happened? Um, basically, I can tell, give you my narrative. We were in the Mamara Hotel, which is right on Taxon Square. That morning, there was a tent city that had been set up that the government basically bulldozed. So everyone dispersed. By the time in the early afternoon, people came back, and then the police got wind of it, and you could see an army of police come with tear, ga uh, with tear gas canisters and uh, water spraying, and then all of a sudden it just broke out. I mean, there were um, protesters and the police just went at it. And to be able to, to witness this was just incredible because uh, what was interesting is the police did not try and prevent people from taking pictures. They didn't go after foreigners. They didn't try and... And it wasn't like they weren't trying to suppress the video, right? Right, which I thought was very, very interesting. And when you talk with the protesters, they said, "Look, it's gone beyond cutting down trees. We are concerned that this government uh, is not listening to us. We don't want Turkey to move into in the direction of an Islamic fundamentalist state." Is is that the case? Well, I think it's debatable. The problem is, if you believe McCain when he met Erdogan, he said this guy is extremely arrogant, thinks he knows everything. And we well, can say that about just about any Middle Eastern uh, head of state. Well, but he specifically said that about the Turkish Prime Minister. Or any other head of state. Or any other head of state. But in the minds of the protesters, you know, he's not listening to them. You, there was a famous um, leader in Ivory Coast called Houphouet Boigny. When, um, when students were actively protesting his policies, many of them were tear gassed and they were arrested and thrown in jail. What Houphouet Boigny did is he went into the jails, he actually sat down with the students and said, okay, tell me what your grievances are. And in the end, that made the difference because many of them came on board. This is what Erdogan should do. He's already apologized for the excessive use of force. What he should start doing is uh, have a dialogue with the students. Is, is this the beginning of a new Arab Spring possibly in Turkey? Possibly if they do not address the issues of the protesters and what this young um, a lawyer, uh, a law student, was telling us, is, uh, you know, we want we want to say in what the government is doing. We just feel Erdogan is moving us in the wrong direction, and that and that's really the key. I mean, these are bright intellectual people that want to have a voice in their society, and they feel that Erdogan um, is is not representing them and is moving away from that. And and who knows what the real story is? Uh, all we can do is encourage. Both parties to engage and work this out. I mean, but but Erdogan's putting himself in a very tenuous situation, particularly with the relationship that Turkey has with NATO. Right, and I and I think that that is going to be very problematic moving forward because he's got to be able to uh, deal with the issues in his, within his own country. Alan Moore. Yeah, there are serious problems in Turkey right now, but I think it's a mistake to even use the words Arab Spring and Turkey in the same sentence. They have elections in Turkey, and those elections matter. It is an imperfect democracy because the military still has an enormous amount of influence, but, but the elections do, in fact, matter. People do get elected, and uh, that it was not the case in any of the countries 
that, that were subject to, to Arab Spring. It's important. It's crucial. They're a key ally of ours. They're important to NATO. They're important to the EU. But this is not uh, uh, an, another candidate for Arab Spring. I'm not sure if it's in Arab Spring, but there are two things. First, I'm concerned about the military and the Turkish military in particular because they do not have a good relationship with Erdogan. He specifically neutered them. I mean, just took out an entire core of the general section. So if the military is upset, and they have been upset, they may use this as an opportunity to come out of the barracks. So that's the first thing that concerns me. The second thing that concerns me, and this is more from the U.S. military side, is if I am thinking I am about to go into war against Syria, where am I going into? I do not want upheaval in Turkey right now because two of my main bases for transporting military goods and personnel are in Turkey, and I want to transport them into Turkey because I don't want to have to find another landing zone. So I want stability in Turkey right now. If I don't have stability in Turkey right now, I'm going, oh my goodness, now what am I going to do? And, and I think the problem um, with, with, uh, with, with what's going on in Turkey is a lot of these young people um, don't feel that the elections are, are, are going to continue, that for some reason Erdogan might eliminate the ability to actually, you know, elect and Carl, move the country in a more, uh, in the wrong direction. Carl Tubman. There's an article in the paper today that said that, there's an article in the paper today that said that the president of Turkey disagrees with Erdogan. How much impact does that have? Well, uh, certainly I think, I think that um, will, will, will play itself out. I, again, you're going to have to have an intense dialogue to bring all parties together um, to maintain the safety and security of Turkey. I mean, the, I, I agree with Denise. You don't want a situation in, uh, the situation in Turkey spiraling out of control. And everyone, it, everyone in, in Turkey, I think, recognizes how important this ability is, but yet there are, there's a lot of frustration and anger at all, on all different levels. Congressman Al, I just wanted to ask yeah. you a question. When you said I, I don't want, I don't. Want, were you talking about the United States? Yes, yeah. it's to the interest of the United States. The United States wants a stable Turkey so that it can use its bases in Ikerlik and other locations to be able to maneuver in other places in the Middle East. We probably could not operate in the Middle East without those bases. Exactly. Right? We could not. No, very interesting. Okay, uh, well. Dr. Ralph Woody, appreciate you joining us. Thanks for coming on. Always appreciate your perspective. When we come back, back. when we come back, it's backroom roulette. It's free for all. We talk about whatever the roundtable wants to talk about. And tell me a story. Which Congressman Al, you will go first this time. All right. All right. There we go. Oh. Supposed to be Denise and Carl. Oh, it is. Thank you. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, Al. You've been outvoted. Carl and Denise, you'll take up. And when we come back. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelly's is the place for private parties. Shelly's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelly's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. 
Although Shelly's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelly's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelly's Backroom, go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelly's Backroom, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. table wants to talk about, and usually it's our most entertaining segment of the evening. Uh, Denise, you want to talk about the Fourth Estate. I do, Justin. There was a really interesting article in the Washington Post about a week ago talking about the bureaucratic system here in Washington, D.C. When I'm talking about bureaucracy, I'm talking about regulations and, and, and policies, and I want to give you an example. Um, I was at a Coast Guard meeting recently. And uh, I, I gave my remarks. And while I was giving my remarks, the government panel that was sitting there wasn't paying attention. In fact, not only were they not paying attention, but a State Department and Coast Guard representative were having their own private conversation. And so at the dais, I literally stopped as if, am I, say, am I boring you? Because I thought we were here for a public meeting. And they kept talking. That's fine. So one of my requests at this meeting was to make this meeting more transparent and ask for the Coast Guard to put the meeting notes on its website. Well, how'd that go over? It didn't go over. In fact, I like a word balloon. It did, which was mind-boggling because this meeting was subject to the FACA rules, which is the Federal Advisory Committee Act. Now, over the past ten years, according to GSA, the government has spent four billion dollars on the 1,000 FACA. So my question to the Coast Guard was, how is your money being spent? Because according to you, you cannot afford to put, you cannot afford to do a transcription. So if you can't afford to do a transcription of the meeting, and you cannot afford to place your meeting audio or the audio of the meeting on your website, then how exactly is this meeting transparent? Now the irony is that the president, about the goal, let's see, about 24 hours after assuming office, put out a memorandum talking about transparency and saying that he wanted this to be a more transparent administration. You're believing transparency from the Obama administration? Oh come on. You're not that naive. I apparently am that naive because my little kick over the next couple of months is going to be making the administration more transparent. If you are spending $4 billion on a Federal Advisory Committee Act committee, 
then you surely can make committees more transparent, especially if you want folks in the middle part of the United States who cannot afford to attend Washington, D.C. meetings aware of what you are doing. What was the name of Don Quixote's sidekick? Sancho Panza. Tell you what, when you find your Sancho Panza on this Don Quixote-esque uh, endeavor of yours to get more transparency out of the Obama administration, let me know. I, I know will. a good vendor of donkeys. Okay. Uh, you've got to be kidding me. This, Bob, as a Republican, I mean, Denise, obviously a Democrat, and former political appointee by the Obama administration, transparency is a foreign word. Well, no, wait, wait, let's be fair, and I expect Alan would agree with me. Because he served in Republican administrations and in the White House, and uh, he's seen the, 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 the fourth estate, if you will. Uh, I think bureaucracies, by their definition, tend to be internalizing, trying to keep things within themselves, trying not to be, uh, you know, watched over too closely, and and close ranks when anybody takes a look at them. And I think that uh, it's it's human nature in some degree, but. Quite frankly, I think that uh, the, the entire, I think the the rules, regulations, and laws with respect to the bureaucracy and the rights of employees and the rights of I think it all needs to be restructured. I don't think it ever will be, but I think it needs to be. Congressman, you know, we, we, we talk about wanting more transparency in government. We've talked about this in in several aspects when it comes when it came to budget debates, when it came to appointments, etc. Uh, transparency seems to elude, uh, you know, not just in his administration, but many administrations in recent history. Uh, is, is, do you see this in your time in Washington ever changing? No. It's human nature. Uh, you're, you're off trying, to, in your judgment, you're trying to get good things done. And the more details you give, the more of a target you become. And so you try to minimize the target by not being as transparent. That, I seems to me, as long as human beings are running the government, uh, that's going to be part of the situation. You know what's funny, though, Alan Moore, is, you know, there are pockets of government that we see. I, there's, there's, there's a small enclave in the Department of Ed that I know that is pushing transparency. There are there's a small enclave inside Treasury that is pushing transparency, but there's small small pockets that seem to be either not recognized for their transparency or it's just not part of the cool thing to do. What's got to change? Well, uh, I, I don't I don't know how bad everything is. The, the, the fact of the matter is, everything in life is a balance of shared information and private information, whether it's in a home, at an office, in government. Um, and uh, we, we sort of know after the fact that about, we hear about bad things and say, if only the doors had been open. But every time we try to have some kind of a sunshine proposal, including in federal law, people say, oh, we've got to have these meetings in, in public. Well, in that case, we're going to have to do all of our planning before the meeting, after the meeting. It, it, it's always a balancing act, and, and there is simply no way that you can, that, that in, in, the, in the one extreme, 
every meeting, every conversation is open to every, to any and everybody. Um, and then on the other hand, once you start closing the doors, and you see it particularly in White Houses, not just this one, but this one certainly exemplifies it, you, you get nothing except you get the information from, I don't think myself, but Jay Carney, I don't think he's a paid liar. I think he's a paid spinner. Right. And he tells the truth. He just doesn't tell the whole truth. And every press secretary to every president we've ever had did that same thing. Bob Hines, you know, we look at Florida, for example, and I, and I know this because, you know, having to deal with the government of the Sunshine Law myself, you look at Florida, Florida's government of the Sunshine Law has been very, very good as far as getting government transparent. Uh, it's a pain in the rear end for the government, but there's you can, anybody has access to everything in anything public. What eludes DC? What makes DC different if somebody like Florida or some of the other states that have government in the sunshine laws? Well, because I don't know about your experience. I don't know about what Florida is, and I don't know what other states do. But it strikes me that no, you know, Florida is a large state. It's one of the what half dozen largest states, so it's probably got one of the half dozen biggest number number three. Yeah, but it's uh, it's still minuscule compared to the federal government. And it's a lot harder. The bigger thing something is, the harder it is to get your arms around it. And, and quite frankly, I don't think anybody has ever really tried to do it. Congressman Al, <clears throat> dare I say this? There are some advantages to non-transparency. Like what? Like being able to talk about things that are that are discussions. Uh, that are that are not fully formed yet, so that you're not, you don't get attacked before you've done anything. Ex parte communication? No. Now here's what I'm saying. <clears throat> I wish you, Denise, well, and I think I I hope your Don Quixote keeps writing because, <laughs> because and 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 I hope it finds some really good windmills to till there because it's only through that effort that you're going to get a balance between because the bureaucracy will continue to try and keep it quiet and then there's the pressure to bring it out and I think you end up with a balance that is probably pretty good both for policy making which is often best done uh, in, in, uh, well, I, I'm overstating it I say on the quiet but there's a certain amount of element where if you just get together and talk without people looking at you and hearing everything you say, where you can cut deals, where you can make compromises, and so forth. Uh, but if you let the bureaucracy know that it's they're they're free to do that, they will carry it way to an extreme. So, so having a policy of being open and having Don Quixote is running around trying to see that it stays open uh, it is uh, is probably a pretty good balance. There will still be some things that will be done in quiet, but a lot less than if you just said we're not going to bother. And he's crap. All right. I understand why, why and how it is easier to not have as many open meetings. I helped run an agency. I fully understand that when you only have to listen to five voices versus 500 voices, it is much easier to lead and to make decisions. 
On the other hand, when you have an administration that made a specific decision not to bring in people like lobbyists, not to bring in people with experience in various industries, that means this administration does not have some of the knowledge that they do need, and if you're not going to take that knowledge up front, and you're not going to accept it from the public, then you're not making the smartest decision. Wait, 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 there's hypocrisy in the White House? Oh, my goodness, Justin. Let's just say that what we need There's to no do... There's no hypocrisy in politics. No. no not never, no. It never. is politics. <laughs> this, is, this is purely politics. But when you start talking about businesses' bottom lines and you start talking about their ability to spend money or not spend money because you haven't made or you've made have made or have not made decisions that are not going to help them, then you need to explain this to them because you need to explain why a certain business is going to have to pay a certain percentage of money when they wouldn't have elsewhere but for the government's decision-making process. And, 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 and I wish her well. Yeah, drink up on that one, Denise. That is awesome. Well, and, and I didn't mean that lightly. I mean, I, I, think, I think it's an essential part of what needs to be done but it's, but it's not going to be totally successful, and well, that may be good too. It can't be successful. You you look at the Florida you look at the Florida law for example. My point. But it need be actively pursued, even if it can't be but successful. Let me give you an example. Florida's government in the Sunshine Law, for example, you cannot have two commissioners or two state legislators or two government officials in the same space talking about business unless it's, or you can have two, you can't have three because then it becomes a meeting. Ex parte communications aren't promoted in government in the sunshine, whereas some of the deals that we're trying to promote in civility in Washington are going to be some of those phone call discussions, some of those knocking on the door, walking into the to the member's office and talking about it. If you can't have free people, that takes away the process. I don't, I don't think that we're talking about the idea about two congressmen can't sit down and try to work out an amendment. No, we're talking about a bureaucracy, which is not so much a policy-making body. The policy-making body is the Congress. They're, they're implementing. They're, they're putting together rules and regulations. They're trying to make. They're trying to oversee statutes and, and follow up on them. That's a different thing, and that's where you need transparency completely. I think. I think if you want to, you want to solve your problems on Capitol Hill. The best thing you can do is go. You got to walk across the aisle and sit down, talk and talk to somebody and work something out. That's one thing, because those are legislators who are elected, and that's their job. But when you're talking about a bureaucracy, their job is to implement, and when they do that in anything less than a public way, uh, it's not as good as it should be. Interesting point, Congressman Allen. That is true. And I have had experience with, unfortunately, not one agency, but a number of agencies where they were, in fact, lying to me. Department of Energy comes, comes up in, in mind. Uh, Paid liars. That's Jake Harney. Once in the Federal Railway Administration, there were a number of examples where they were just trying to keep the Congress out of affairs with the most most nefarious actions. And I'll tell you one. 
Hanford. Hanford is the nuclear in my state. And the Department of Energy wanted to put the high-level nuclear waste in, in, in one or two places, Yucca Flats, or in Hanford. And everything that I can figure out is they really wanted it at Hanford because they once did a, an evaluation. What, how, how will this affect the groundwater? How close is it to major populations? Those kinds of issues. And they, they rated all of these sites, and Hanford uh, popped, was way down at the bottom, way at the bottom. The agency went back in and re-rated the issues. And guess what? Hanford popped right to the top. They changed the criteria. They changed the criteria. They changed. They reweighted the criteria. So these people need to be watched now. Now, and this is this is the end of it. Who who are the watchdogs of the of the agencies? The Congress. Does it do a good job on that? No. Well, wait. It, isn't the Inspector General supposed to be watchdogs as well? Yeah. Different. But, then, because yeah, Al, Al's talking about policy making by the uh, executive agencies because they do a lot of it. Yes. They give they get very broad authority in the law and then they have to define it through a process of creating regulations and making recommendations. Much of that process is in fact transparent at at different stages. Not least of all when you put put out proposed rules to implement laws but and the public are, gets to get a look. Now, if you're going to lie or 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 deceive, there's no that mm -hmm. that, that that's a different proposition it's a different altogether. Proposition, but it means that it means that the Congress has got to do a better job of oversight than it does. It's traditionally been terrible at oversight, and in, in two ways: one, it doesn't do it, and two, if it does it. It's in charge of some demagogue who is out to, uh, you know, get headlines and what have you, rather than do a serious job right. of. Uh, of well, we we we've got ten minutes left in the show. We got to get to our, our Carl. You want to have a word on this, or I do you want? Yeah, one word, two words. The and tell the, your story. Yeah. If, you, if yeah. you really want to, if you really want to get transparency, when you bring officials from the agencies or the departments into come to Congress. You swear them in. That way, they have to tell the truth. Because if they don't tell the truth, they can be um, um, subpoenaed or, or whatever. You know, they can be, again, I can't think of the word. Well, prosecuted. Yeah. prosecuted. Well, we're going to let that be the last word. Uh, now we're going to go into Tell Me a Story here real quick. Ladies first. Okay. Well, you have that privilege. This is Tell Me a Story where we talk about all the buzz, innuendo, rumor going around. Look, look I'm going to pick Carl Tubin, tell me a story. All right. This, uh, this, I have to tell this story in order to straighten Al out that uh, every every Christmas I go to a Christmas party in Virginia. <laughs> I'm drinking. And, Folks, I want on record. I'm and, drinking. I'm and, drinking now. And there are more people of my faith there than there are other faiths. And that is the only time that I will have ham. I'll have two pieces of ham. That night, Christmas night, and that's it. Folks yeah. out there in Radio Land, I'm doing shots now. And that, and, 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 and that holds you for the whole year. Okay, uh, now, 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 I'm just going to cut this off. Christmas has <laughs> never been a big deal for Carl. <laughs> Again! Now I'm really drinking, kids. Denise, tell me a story. 
Why does it stop here? Why not? Go okay. ahead. My husband, Tim Krebs' book on Georgetown Ghost, yes, this is shameless, is coming out. And because I love my husband so much, it's coming out on Amazon the third week in June. And again, if you believe in ghosts and you believe in Georgetown, buy it because, well, help, folks, brings more income to my family. You know, you know what? You know what? I, I've seen a ghost in Georgetown. It's called a national championship. <laughs> Elusive. By the way, Othello, if you're listening to this, brother, I love you. Uh, Alan Ward, tell me a story. All right. Well, in times past, I've been pretty critical of Eric Holder. Uh, Eric Holder has no. Been, Eric Holder has been skating close to the edge of the cliff for some time, and I think. Are you starting with, to feel bad for him? No, I'm not. I think with this, uh, with the the, uh, the investigation of James Rosen of Fox News. He's got one foot out over the uh, over the abyss, and the other one has just hit a banana peel. Um, I think that uh, that his 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 behavior and his comments to the Congress, which triggered this investigation, not by Daryl Issa, but by the Judiciary Committee, over whether he was dishonest before the Congress, and it's a legitimate question because he basically said, "I have never been part of anything that would prosecute a journalist." But in the subpoena that he signed, and they had to go to three different federal judges before somebody would approve it, they, they identified Rosen as a co-conspirator who might have been involved and in, might have criminal liability. I think this is the final straw for Eric Holder. I think he's gone by the fall. Wow, big prediction. You're going out on a limb today, Alan Moore. The others were not. The others were taking candy from babies. Oh, stop <laughs> it. Stop it. Stop it. Uh, Congressman Al, tell me a story. I got to run. On, on, on the 13th of uh, this month, <clears throat> they are going to have a ceremony in Statuary Hall to honor John Dingell as the, the longest serving member of Congress ever. Talk about oversight. Nobody ever did oversight like John Dingell. And rarely, rarely did. Did he did he have the implication of he was doing it for publicity? It often got a lot of publicity, but it was, it was serious stuff. I remember coming to Congress and wondering if if there were any giants left. I mean, all the names that I'd heard growing up and following politics and whatever were gone, and I was wondering, you know, who were the giants? Are there any? Well, it turns out that I became a very good friend of maybe the greatest giant of all. He was named by the Republican who replaced him as chairman of the committee when the Republicans took over. They said, John Dingell is one of the ten best congressmen. And he said, I don't mean just now. I mean ever. And John... I've, I've had recent conversations with John. He's an old man, and he's physically seriously crippled, which gives the view that he may be very weak. Sit down and have a conversation with him, and the brights are still there, huge. So I, I think uh, that, that John Dingle deserves the recognition he's getting, and he in so many of the things we've talked about, if you could just put a John Dingle in the middle of it, 
you could resolve the problem. You know what? I would not be surprised that in our lifetime, or at least in my lifetime, mine and Denise's lifetime, we don't see a Dingle House office building soon. Here, here. Yeah, I, I, I would, I would love to see that. Bob, I'm tell me a story. Um, I'm not surprised that Al was talking about John Dingle. I too, I mean, that was what I was. I was going to talk about John as well. Um, the man, the word giant is too small. He was a. He is a fabulous legislator. As 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 uh, Al says, he is. His body is crippled. His mind is sharp. He is better today, sitting in a chair, than 99% of the guys and gals running around up there all over the place trying to get something done. He knows how to get things done. He is fair-minded. He is honest. His word is better than gold. It's platinum. He is a fabulous legislator. He is probably the best legislator I have ever seen, and I have been around Congress since 1964. You know, he is a fabulous, fabulous legislator. You know, i, I got to tell you something. This will be my story. Is you know, following on. You know, as a political junkie since the time I was in elementary school. You know, one grew up when you followed Congress as a child. You always heard the name John Dingell, this 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 fireball coming out of Michigan, and the things he would do in oversight, the things he would do on on the authorization committees. You know, just an absolute absolute political phenom. Yet, as as a Republican, I'm supposed to vilify. As a Republican, I'm supposed to say, Ah, you know what? The hell with John Dingell. Can't wait till we take his seat. I, as an American who is governed by Congress, can't imagine a world without a John Dingell. We need more John Dingles. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you have to respect the way he was able to work the floor, make deals with the opposition, work with opposition administrations, and get things done. And your key word was work. Right. I don't remember Dan Rostenkowski uh, and some others who, who who were giants too, but I never remember them working the floor. When John had a bill, he would go. There was there was no one two junior for him to put his big arm around them and explain to them why he needed their vote on this. It didn't matter whether. But, they I, but I, I mean, when you talk about John Dingell, I mean, you talk about even in his junior years, he would work the floor, and you know, he would you know get his his superiors, those more senior to him, to work with him, just by him being John Dingle. Towards the end, or towards the latter time in his career, it's hey, I got John Dingle on board. It's almost like a badge of honor for both sides of the world, and and and. and he found a way to make sure that on his committee, I mean, it was always disputes because the Commerce Committee has so many key issues, but he was fair. Now, as a Republican, and most of the time in my, in my time on Capitol Hill, I was in the minority, but John was fair. He always found yeah. a way to take care of something that was vital to you and at the same time, not damage what he was trying to do. Well, we've got about he was an amazing, we've amazing got, legislature. We've got 90 seconds. I want to take a couple seconds and say, before this year is out, we are going to have John Dingle on this show, either pre-recorded or live, 
we will have John Dingle on the show. That could be the greatest honor this show sees. Oh. Um, not, not to take away from Mayor Giuliani, love Rudy Giuliani. We'll have him back. But having John Dingle would be huge, and we will get that interview. <laughs> on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Denise Krapp, a deport, a deported, a departed Alan Moore, Carl Tubin, I'm your host, Justin Russell. We'll be back next Tuesday, live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital. If you're not here, you're missing it. Yeah, you screwed me up on that one, dude. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. I got you.